Hey there, welcome to Blockhead, the Peanuts tribute podcast from a cartoonist's point of view. My name is Jeff Grogan, and I'll be your host for the next hour or so in a series of conversations with comics creators about their lives, their work, and comics. So sit back and enjoy. Hey gang, welcome to Blockhead. It has been unintentionally a while since our last show, and my apologies for that. Uh, It has been a kind of difficult 2022 so far. Uh, I caught COVID, and it wasn't long after the last show was posted that uh, it was in the middle of March, I think. Uh, I caught COVID, and Omicron, as far as I understand anyway, came on very quickly, and it was more difficult than I thought it was going to be, despite being vaccinated and masked and all of that, it, it, it wasn't pleasant. And I, I didn't expect it to be as strong as it was. So many people I've talked to who've had Omicron, uh, it wasn't all that bad, like a cold, a bad cold, but this was more like a bad flu. And then after I had gone through about a week of it, my wife got it. And of course, right? So then uh, after she got over it uh, in about five days, I caught it again for a couple of days. I relapsed. So that was a difficult time. And that would have been enough. But uh, about two weeks ago now, maybe a little longer than that, we lost power up here after a huge snowstorm, probably the biggest uh, snowstorm in April in, you know, recorded uh, history. As, uh, I hate to say recorded history, right? You know, it's like, what is it, the last hundred years or something? But anyway, it was a terrible snowstorm, heavy, wet snow, and it knocked down telephone poles and and trees and branches and power lines all over the place. And needless to say, 50,000 people up here were without power and we were among them. And so it lasted for about a week, not quite a week, um, not quite five days. It was four nights and uh, it was not a pleasant time. No running water, no heat. It was really cold in the house, got down to about 40 degrees. And, uh, And it was just, it was just an awful, awful time. And to make matters worse, one of our cats passed away at that point, and uh, uh, Mr. B, our beloved Botticelli, he was our oldest cat, and it had been a feral cat when we first moved into this place, and after a couple of years, he, he came inside, and he never left, and uh, uh, he was just a beautiful soul who loved everyone, and was not at all distant in the way that cats were. He was very loving and very very affectionate, not only to us, but also to all of our other pets, except for our dog, Duncan, who we love to tease. <laughs> and uh, the two of them had an ongoing sort of thing, adversarial thing. Uh, and uh, because Mr. B, Duncan was a little afraid of Mr. B, and Mr. B really liked to tease Duncan. And, but uh, other than that, he was the most beautiful and, and loving of cats, and he will be sorely missed. So that happened all all of those three things happened in succession so it was a very it was a difficult period of time but hopefully we've rounded the corner and spring is springing (laughs) finally uh today the sun is out we were doing some lawn work earlier and it's looking up so i'm hoping things are going to be looking up 
In fact, uh, they should be. Today we have Bishak Sum here uh, to talk about her work. And she had two great graphic novels out, two of them out in one year in 2020. Uh, the wonderful Epsara Engine, which uh, was winner of the Los Angeles Times Graphic Novel Award for 2020 or 2021, and uh, and well deserving. This is a beautiful book, Epsara Engine. It it is published by the Feminist Press at the City University of New York. You can you can find it at feministpress.org, or you can get it at Barnes and Noble, or you can get it at Amazon, wherever uh, wherever you get your comics. It should be there. Uh, it is a collection of eight short stories that are among the most, um, let's say, uh, uh, ethereal, um, mysterious, uh, dreamlike uh, stories. Magical reality, right? Magical realism, but also tethered to the real world in an interesting way. They, they are some of the most intriguing stories I've read over the last couple of years. They really are, and they all fit together as a whole. It's not like all of they share, you know, Bishak's sensibility, and there's something that something else that ties them all together. And and so it's a it's a it was a really quite an experience reading this book. Unlike uh, any other, it is like entering into a dream state of a kind in which both ordinary and extraordinary things intermingle. Uh, and the artwork, of course, is stellar, just absolutely beautiful. And I think you've got to check it out. Epsara Engine and Spellbound, also a graphic memoir, which is, it, it, it's a really interesting book that, uh, that collects a series of episodic tales uh, about Anjali, who is a kind of surrogate for Bishak. Uh, Anjali is uh, an architect, like Bishak was an architect, uh, has taken some time off to work on a graphic novel. And as Bishak says, um, sometimes she is, is she and Bishak roll into one, and then sometimes they diverge in the way that fictional characters often do. But uh, it does take us through a story, uh, and a story that is in some ways very close to Bishak's own story. So Bishak is here to talk about her work and, uh, and, and uh, her journey as a trans woman and her awakening as a trans woman uh, not too many years ago now. And uh, so it's a great story and uh, Bishak is just so open and willing to share her experience. Just to tell you a little bit about Bishak, Bishak was an architect for many years and studied architecture. And you're going to see architectural uh, references and influences all through her work in many different ways. Uh, really quite beautiful renderings of futuristic and imagined buildings that, that run throughout her work. But uh, I first became aware of Bishak's work in about 2010, 2011, through my friend Kevin Much, who, uh, along with Alex Rader, uh, he, I, and, and Alex published a, a big newspaper anthology called Pood, featuring comics artists all having one page, one big comics page to work on. Uh, individually. We did about four issues of that, and Bishak was a part of that. So I was familiar with her work then, and among, you know, the other great artists we had working for us on, on that comic. And then uh, uh, she went on to do a number of things as a cartoonist uh, and had great success, uh, most obviously with The New Yorker, uh, which is like the pinnacle, right, of 
of success for any gag cartoonist. And so she's worked for The New Yorker. She's done work for The Brooklyn Rail. She's done work for uh, a number of well-known websites, BuzzFeed among them. So her work is just, you know, proliferating over the last few years. So you're, you're likely to have encountered it, particularly if you're a reader of The New Yorker. And then, of course, in 2020, she had these two graphic novels appear uh, after working on them for a number of years. And and, uh, to great success as well, uh, they've been reviewed all over the place as uh, in places like NPR and elsewhere. And then she's won uh, the Los Angeles Times Award. And and that's just, you know, terrific. And I couldn't be happier for her uh, as somebody who um, published her work early on. So... Uh, in my small way. So I'm thrilled, really, that Bishak is here today. And I think... uh, So we talk about that. We talk about trans experience. We talk about her work and uh, so many other things in this wonderful conversation with Bishak Song. So I think you're going to enjoy it. Um, Without further ado, then, and without any more uh, of my troubles to bog you down, let's get right to it. Uh, Myself and Bishak Sum in conversation. Hello, Bishak Sum. Welcome to Blockhead. Thanks so much, Jeff, for having me. It's an yeah, I'm thrilled to have you here, Bishak. It's, it's been a long time uh, yeah. since we talked, mm-hmm. uh, about probably about 10 years or so, um, yeah. when we were all working on Pood, that uh, yes. broadsheet anthology. And a lot has happened since then. Um, Perhaps the, one of the most significant is that uh, in 2020, you have two books out, two books out in 2020, which is a mind blower. I can't believe you got two big books out in one year. I, I didn't plan it that way, I, I assure you. <laughs> <laughs> How long were you work? Well, OK, the two books are for those who are, are tuning in um, Spellbound, a graphic memoir, which mm-hmm. is really a story about your journey from mm-hmm. streetnoisebooks.com and Apsara Engine, mm. uh, published by the Feminist Press at the uh, City University of New York, right? Yes. Which you can, you can, I mean, both of these books are available pretty much everywhere. Uh, but, okay, so so you weren't planning on both of those books coming out at the same time, but how did that all happen? And, and were you working on them at the same time? And um, you know, I'm just curious as to, as to that culmination. It's a really extraordinary and very busy kind of culmination. It is. Um, it's kind of a, uh, the process was quite, um, stretched out. Uh, I had my original plan was to, um, to, I had been, I quit my job as I, as I, um, portray in Spellbound, I'd quit mm-hmm. my job in architecture to work on a graphic novel, which eventually became Upsara Engine. Um, so I took some time off to work on that. I had some old stories um, from like mini comics that I'd done, some of which um, I think Kevin and Alex had published um, in in their um, sort of archive of anthologies. Mm-hmm. But um, some of those made it into Upsara Engine, and then I wrote some more stories for that, and it eventually became um, sort of a viable book, which I then sent off to publishers. Mm-hmm. Um, and while I was waiting for word from them, that's when I started Spellbound. But at the time, I hadn't really thought that that was going to become uh, a book project. I was just doing it to have something to do 
um, while I was waiting and I didn't quite know, you know, what the next step was in terms of my career in mm -hmm. art or comics. So I just started doing these diary comics, which eventually sort of um, accumulated and turned into what we now see or know as Spellbound. Um, having said that, I, you know, I hadn't, I didn't hear back from publishers about Apsara for a long time. I mean, I got some rejections and for a long time I was sort of in a holding pattern. Um, and it was only until, it was only like 2018 or so that I finally sent it to Feminist Press, not even knowing that they did graphic novels, um, and which is when I heard from them. Uh, and around the same time, you know, um, I met with Liz, who is the publisher at Street Noise Books, who was interested in, you know, any projects that I had. And I floated the project, which is now called Spellbound, but back then was called The Continuing Adventures of Anjali and Ampersand, the two main characters of the book. Um, and she really wanted to turn it into a book book. So I had two projects on my hand without really you know, having planned it at all, but uh, but luckily, you know, it, you know, it it worked out for me. And it, when it rains, it pours. I guess you know. Yeah, it and what a fortunate sort of confluence of events, really. Uh, it, it's they're both very different books, mm -hmm. yet at the same time, they both share a very clear sensibility. I mean, they're they're obvious not only visual intersections, but they're also in terms of tone and and um, approach to storytelling and pacing and things like that. But at the same time, they are very distinct from one another. Um, uh -huh. You know, uh, and it's interesting to, to think that Apsara was something that you'd been working on on and off, I suppose, over a course of maybe 10 years or something yeah. like that, uh, before it all came together in one book. And so yeah. I'm assuming that Apsara is the book that is referred to then in Spellbound, <laughs> it, um, where where you said um, Anjali. It, if I correct me if I'm mis mispronouncing names, no, well, okay. but um, Anjali sends off the book, and that's mm -hmm. uh, Anjali is your surrogate in a sense, and yes. sends off the book to publishers, and that's the book you're talking about. Yes, I mean it's it's sort of. Uh, debatable whether or not the book she's writing is also Apsara Engine or mm -hmm. not, but um, that's that's sort of a, you know, something one can quibble about. It, I don't know how important it is that it is Apsara or not, but, you know, we our paths diverge on, on quite a few occasions in Spellbound, so that may be one of the way, one of the points at which we branch out. She may be writing a completely different book, but it's hard to tell. Oh, gosh, that is really interesting to think about that, that Anjali is both, you know, in some ways mirrors your life, but at the yeah. same time veers off as a fictional character and entity into her own self, uh -huh. you know, and then you could, I mean, conceivably do a whole series of books or do a couple of stories that are just her doing stories, which would be kind of interesting. I would love to do that, actually. Yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot to untangle to her um, in in her character mm -hmm. and you know a lot of it is informed by me but i think at some point her character sort of escaped my orbit and and she became her own thing which i hint at in the book itself where she sort of shows up at the end of the book as her own character and sort of confronts me with yeah. my own, with my own words about her and so she's sort of you know escaped my clutches as it were 
Isn't that interesting the way characters, when you, when, you know, you like uh, the difference, I'm just thinking of uh, Sara Engine is a variety of characters and, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I think one or two reoccur in the book, but, um, <laughs> you know, in, in Spellbound, we, we have a completely, you know, fully formed character mm-hmm. who in some sense has a life of her own. Uh, at the same time that you're, as the artist and author, using her in one way or the other, she depend de- de- uh, develops, as you hint at the end, a kind of independence of her own. Isn't that something, the way that happens to, to uh, fictional characters? It is, yeah. It's very strange. Like, you know, when I originally started um, the project of Spellbound, I I didn't think twice about having a surrogate character who was a woman. And, you know, I wasn't out at the time as trans, but... It seemed to make sense to me to have a cisgendered woman playing me mm-hmm. um, because in a way that's what I'd been doing with all my other characters um, in maybe, you know, in Apsara Engine for one thing, a lot of the characters are queer but cis um, and there's a sort of substitution in that I'm writing them, um, but that seemed natural to me, but it was only in hindsight that all of that seemed to mean and I hint at this in Spellbound too, that it um, that kind of uh, approach to writing characters meant much more than it seemed at the time, you know, and it meant much more to me um, when I was coming out as trans. It all seemed to make sense, you know, because I like very. I found it very difficult to write characters who were men. And maybe there was a reason for that. Um, wow, that's interesting. Yeah, uh, yeah I mean, sure, it, it, there probably was. Well, you know, maybe we should talk a little bit about your journey because it does, ref- it's like there are many different ways in which your journey um, as trans is reflected in the work and then kind of reverberates throughout, you know, both books, obviously mm-hmm. through Spellbound in a much more, I guess, um, linear fashion, but but um, certainly in Apsara too. So you came out in 2016 or was it 20 somewhere around that time i know you refer to a uh, an it an interaction with another trans mm-hmm. woman mm-hmm. and how that sort of in spellbound anyway um your awareness was kind of um opened up at that time so so what how did that all happen and and you know was it a difficult moment of awareness for you or was it a gradual awakening was it something you'd always been been aware of or thinking about it wasn't something i was always aware of um but i uh i'd always been searching for something and i just didn't know what it was Mm -hmm. um and that's why you know and i again i talk about this a little bit in spellbound i think it's why i sort of immersed myself in subculture rather than in gender so uh you know i sort of identify at the time and still do as a goth which made me which was sort of a substitute for trans for me right it's sort of like allowed me to be someone approximating what i thought i could be without troubling the waters of gender Mm -hmm. um but it was only like i say when i met this woman uh, and i think it might have been 2016 i'm not really sure but around then who assumed i was trans and I was like, oh, I didn't know I was allowed to be. Um, wow. Only, only because I wasn't taking any hormones or anything. I hadn't really done anything to alter myself. I was, I just was. But she read me as a trans woman. 
um, as a woman. And I was like, oh, okay, knowing very little about what it meant to be trans, I think she then sort of launched me on this trajectory where I found out much more about what the possibilities are within the spectrum we call transgender. So, you know, I found out about people who are non-binary or genderqueer or gender fluid or agender, and also specifically like, you know, what it means to be trans femme like me or a trans woman, you know, you can just be, you can call yourself what you want and you can be who you want without having to um, necessarily do what most people think of as a transition, mm. which is to say a chemical or a, a medical transition, even though eventually I did start hormone therapy. Um, you know, there's there's sort of, there's a spectrum of experiences and and approaches to how one is trans, and mine is a very specific one. I just didn't know about this world, and that's why I, I exclus- excluded myself from it, you know? Mm-hmm. But once I came to, once my friend opened this world up for me, it just made so much sense, and things seemed to lock into place. And, uh, yeah, I feel just much more at ease with myself, um, and the sort of uh, adherence to subculture is still there, but it now is like sort of married to a recognition of gender. And I um, I feel just much more uh, like I have a place in the world. It's interesting. Um, you know, I was just thinking about that, how I guess it's just part of a human journey, right? This idea of longing to belong somewhere mm-hmm. and and, um, and to find like-minded individuals that don't necessarily reflect our experience back on us but that share our experience and and so we feel as though we can we're understood and and we can communicate and talk about those and share those experiences and and uh and it's awful to be locked out of that Mm -hmm. that sense of belonging Mm -hmm. is that something of uh, you know that that you felt during you know in the years prior that that a kind of displacement or did goth kind of answer that for you it did answer that for me and that's why you know um even though i didn't i was ever part of a hardcore goth community i was in a goth band for a, a hot moment um but just having that aesthetic for me was a sort of armor um, and it, it, I guess it shielded me a little bit from the world, you know, it sort of like gave me um, the strength to be out in the world with a sort of uh, swagger. I mean, mm. and when I say swagger, I don't mean self-confidence. I mean, it's like a, almost like a survival technique, you know, it's like having the confidence to walk through the world just so people don't harass you, um, mm. you know, and uh yeah, so, uh, but yeah, having that as a sort of um, cloak was was uh, was was very powerful and important to me, but it also translated into something even more potent once I came to understand that this was the sort of road towards gender reckoning. Well, tell me if this is a little too personal, but mm-hmm. I'm, the one thing I'm, I'm wondering is if if it was also a cloak that sort of shielded you you as well from a kind of self-recognition. That's interesting. Um, I'm not really sure. I mean, if someone had had approached me earlier in my life and said, wow, you seem like very femme and are you trans? 
um, I would have been I would have been fine with that. I wouldn't have fought against it because I was always on that path. I just didn't, like I say, I just didn't know it was a path that was open to me. Mm. So, no, I don't think it was a cloak against my self-recognition. I think it was just a cloak against, um, against, I don't know, like bristling against society, but having a reason to do it. You know, it's sort of like, being a rebel with a cause like and and adhering to some to the subculture in order to feel a sense of belonging yeah like, and you were you, oh i'm sorry uh, i didn't mean to cut you off um you were saying you you used the word armor and mm-hmm. it's very interesting because in in one sense um i mean we all kind of in the, that is something that we all do in a way as we put mm-hmm. this shield up you know to protect us because i mean in a lot of ways we're all really very vulnerable and human beings are just like that unless you're you know putin or somebody but um, <laughs> you know yeah. there there is this sense that we need to be guarded to a degree and yes. trans people in particular are subject to an enormous amount of harassment and violence uh-huh. and um you know and so looking for some kind of armor in a sense is is absolutely you know i, I don't want to say essential i mean it's not essential to become goth you know the <laughs> way of blocking out the world but but in some sense there is a, a you know it's a scary thing uh, because there is this this you know element in the world that is really threatened by uh trans experience Absolutely. and you know and will act out in violent ways and so it's it's you know so armor is kind of it's a natural you know looking for some kind of armor I think so. I think so. At least, I mean, there are people that, I mean, right now I'm in upstate New York mm-hmm. and um, in Glens Falls, and I see people who seemingly don't have that armor that kind of just walk through the world with a sense of ease and a sense of sort of like, I don't even care what I look like. I can, you know, mm-hmm. go to go to the grocery store in my pajamas and, and <laughs> just be like, have no sense of like how I present myself to the world. And I'm like, huh, I wonder what that's like, like to be that comfortable with with your place in the world that you can just sort of not be shielding yourself all the time and just sort of let it, let go of everything and, and be um, very uh, confidently who you are. Or maybe it's not even confidence. Maybe it's just like, oh, I don't, I don't care, you know, like yeah. it would be interesting to occupy that, that mindset for a little bit. Yeah. But yeah. And, but for, for trans people, it's hard to do because oh, absolutely, yeah. the world yeah. makes you aware of, of, of so many things mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and there's so much pressure, you know, perhaps not from everyone, but from a large segment of society for somebody who's trans not to be not to be. You know? Yes. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and it's kind of a, an odd thing because you know there's always been trans people. There's always. Yes. Been, I mean, the history of the world is is made up of a multiplicity of people on the spectrum. It's not mm-hmm. always been so narrowly defined Absolutely. as it had been in the 20th century and um, or late 19th and 20th century. But yeah, the the world is always it's always been that complex. It's just a matter of some sense of recognition or understanding and uh-huh. uh, but yeah there's it almost seems as though society has had gone through this period or maybe it always was like that where it, it didn't want to recognize its its complexity its own complexity 
you know mm-hmm. and and so the, all these structures are built to reinforce this this simple idea of gender identity or race identity or whatever you know uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, which has obviously led to lots of you know terrible violent situations and and um, psychologically devastating situations yeah so, but hopefully I mean, mm-hmm. the world's turning around but anyway yeah you were going to say something oh uh, just about you know when you were saying how trans people have always been around and you know in, have always been part of history um and something i'm i've been very interested in and which i'm pursuing in my work now and in projects that i'm going to be working on is um sort of indigenous trans identities um Mm -hmm. specifically south asian um trans um popular identities um especially uh, trans women who are, you know, go by many different names in India and Pakistan and Bangladesh, but um, I guess they're most well known as the as hijras, right? And um, they have, there are ancient texts which mention people who could be interpreted as trans with, you know, tech, Hindu texts that have trans people in them. So you're right. And it's so like, I think, you know, a product of colonialism that that uh, current or contemporary trans identities are reviled or like um, fought against. You know, it's a, it's a product of colonialism, but also it's strangely in 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 India, like in perhaps, you know, you I don't know if you know this already or not, but like trans women are both feared and to some degree worshipped <laughs> because they you know people a lot of people think that they have divine powers like and that some of so this is like vestiges of the sort of uh, mythology or cosmology of hinduism that has revealed has placed some trans people on a sort of uh, pedestal that's a little higher than your average mortal right so yeah. um you know trans women in india for example give out blessings for people who are taking exams or for people who are getting married or people who are expecting children because people think that the touch of a trans person is, you know, the touch of of the goddess. Um, But at the same time, they're also like denied a lot of uh, rights and a lot of privileges and they're also regarded with some suspicion and uh, fear. So it's a very odd sort of um, combination of reverence and and uh, repulsion, you know. Mm-hmm. So um, the same thing is not true here, but it's another story altogether. Um, well, you know, it's it's very interesting. I was just thinking of gods in gods and goddesses are often both, uh-huh. you know, feared as well as um, revered. Or, uh-huh. and, you know, I mean, I I think of. Um, uh, you know the the attitude towards the uh, the oh, what was it the the there's the the Byzantine Christ figure who is mm. Antokrator as that was called I believe mm. which is a, the judge Christ as judge you know uh-huh. um, which is kind of interesting he's a, a whereas Christ appears in many forms and there are many interpretations of the of the figure that in that particular mode Christ is a judge and. Uh-huh very stern judge and very you know and the idea of fear is very built into that Uh and you can see it in the images of that 
uh, figure. Right. Which is all very stern and um, <laughs> kind of scary. But, uh, you know, I was just thinking as you were saying that there there are other cultures as well, are there not, where, where trans trans people are also seen as, as, as if not divine, as somehow in tune with, um, you know, another level of being. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm, I may be totally mistaken, but I, am I, am I, I'm thinking that native, some native mm-hmm. American culture, yes. there is yeah. that, uh, idea as well. The shaman may say. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So being able to sort of transcend gender, you know, a lot of, um, native, um, trans folks were identify or do still identify as two spirit. Right. So, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, and just having the sort of power to transcend the binary of gender mm-hmm. seems to confer upon that person a sort of uh, these divine attributes, which then makes them perfect as like uh, healers of the community. And as you say, sh- shamans and, you know, these these people with sort of <laughs> magical touch, as it were, yeah. which is the same way they you know south asian um trans women are regarded so yeah it's like there's a web of this kind of um trans divinity that that is um spun over the planet that that has been eroded to some degree but is is making um you know the more you excavate the histories of, of these kinds of histories the more uh, i think that web sort of solidifies and becomes uh what it was like before colonialism but uh, i don't know maybe maybe i'm just being too grand about it (laughs) i don't i don't think so i i I do think you know while progress is a is always a halting kind of thing it's never right linear there there is a sense that that in excavating histories and becoming more culturally diverse and more aware at least you know at this moment well at the same time we're looking politically at, at you know all of the strife and this kind of backwards thinking at the same time we're also seeing kind of more open and progressive and and culturally diverse thinking mm-hmm. and as that culturally diverse thinking impacts more and more people mm-hmm. a, a, a greater awareness of our history a greater awareness of you know um the, the diver- diversity of human life and experience becomes you know more available we become hopefully you know more tolerant and and i think that these barriers that we've built up you know during the colonial era as you're you're talking about begin to hopefully break down Uh something you know this kind of this kind of broad spectrum becomes viable and available to all of us to experience and understand um, because you know we're all kind of imprisoned or hurt a little bit by this very these very narrow definitions, mm-hmm. and uh, you know and it, it as we've talked about how it, it can lead to all kinds of toxic environments and toxic mas- masculinity is one of those things that people have been talking about a lot over the last few years and that's mm-hmm. certainly certainly a result in some to some degree of those kinds of very rigid definitions of gender. Yeah, yeah. So, well, you know, this experience, it, it, it's interesting, too, how it plays out in the work. And, and have, do you feel in like as you were putting the books together and you're looking at the, at the work, do you see we, you talked a little bit about it, but do you see the reflections of your own journey through some of the stories in Apsara or, or you know, Anjali's experiences and things of that nature? Yeah. Um, well, specifically with Apsara. 
as I'd mentioned, you know, some of the stories, most of the stories were written before I I came out as trans. Um, and but even so, a lot of them are involve characters who are either queer or mm -hmm. unearthing their queerness. Mm -hmm. So I guess I was on that path even before I thought of myself as queer. Um, it was only after Feminist Press picked up the book that they, and that this time I was out as trans, that they um, asked me to do a, a one more story for the book, which ended up being Swan Dive, um, okay. which is the most explicitly trans and queer story in the book, um, and the one that most accurately reflects who I am now and who I was at the time of writing it. Um, it I mean, it's a, it's a, it's about being trans, and it's about uh, about trans culture and community and and cartography, which is a sort of um, way into talking about trans issues. Um, so yeah, writing that story and having it be part of the book really, I think, locked the rest of the book into place because mm -hmm. otherwise it seems more sort of free floating. But I think that particular story, um, as, as a sort as the is as the heart of the book, yeah. um, you know. Um, and as far as uh, Spellbound goes, yeah, I mean, her Anjali's journey in the book doesn't mirror mine. Uh, it's a sort of parallel track in mm. the sense that she is cisgendered um, and I'm trans, but mm. um, I didn't know how to, you know, I didn't want to just go back and suddenly make her trans, which would then make her a man because, you know, mm. it, it didn't make any sense. So like there were other ways, sort of more oblique ways that I reintroduced the idea of being trans and mainly through the character of Titania, right, who, right. who appears towards the end of the book um, as a sort of gateway into trans, um, into transness, right? Right. Um, but, you know, just, I think the very fact of my having written the book as a woman with this character who is a woman um, is a, as a strategy is, is a trans strategy, even if she is cis. It gets sort of muddled, you know, but, sure. um, but I think the initial impulse is still there. And that is, that was important to me to hang on to that initial impulse, even though I've changed since then. So um, yeah, I mean, thinking about her character is like, uh, you know, we were talking about her becoming independent. I feel like she is completely independent of me now because she doesn't accurately represent who I am anymore. Mm -hmm. But at one point she did. So yeah, it's all, I guess, both books are part of um, documenting a process or a sort of fluid movement rather than documenting a stable identity. It, it's it's interesting. Um, you know, I suppose one thing that we should say, too, is, is that trans, trans is a broad spectrum and one needn't identify with, you know, traditional male or female gender identities, right? It's mm -hmm. like... It's a broad spectrum and so uh, available, you know, uh, a whole world in mm -hmm. which to be. And um, and so it's not, you know, so the experience of growing through it is, is which is something you've been going through, yeah. um, is is 
you don't know it's it's you don't know where it's going to take you right you don't yeah. know where it's take you and and uh and it takes you to a place hopefully where you fulfill yourself uh-huh. so in some sense you know whether or not one identify one does not necessarily have to identify as you know femme or or masculine right mm-hmm. um, it's it's a spectrum that's wide absolutely well, you know um and Anjali goes through a variety of different experiences that, <laughs> yeah. that are really, uh, I mean, it's really, we, I suppose we should tell the audience that uh-huh. Spellbound, uh, Spellbound is a, kind of a memoir, but it's really Anjali's memoir. And um, and Bishak's story overlaps and, and veers away from it. But it's still uh, the story of, of a of growth and transition for a particular character and a kind of much more it's episodic in a way, right? Yes. We, we go from moments to moments to moments. It's not necessarily a straight linear line. No. But uh, it, it, she goes through an enormous number of experiences here um, on the on a path towards finding herself. And uh, and one of the things that distinguishes it from Absara is it's entirely in color. And oh, yes. Mm-hmm. You know, digitally colored, too, yes. I think. Right, which is a very different approach from, from Absara, which is... Much more, Absara is is interesting in in that the narrative strategy is is first of all it's a series of short stories that are seemingly at least at first unrelated to one another but all kind of overlap. And yeah. So, and they're done. Uh, there's there's watercolor and mm-hmm. um, ink wash, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, so it has a different look to it um and a different feel to it it's i i you know it's it's interesting to read both as i said they they share things uh but i've found epstara to be much more um well you know for lack of a better word dreamlike yeah uh, it o- seems to occupy a space you know that's that's both surrealistic um but also you know it, Unlike surrealism, uh, in a sense, which sometimes feels there's an artificial kind of quality, yeah. um, this feels much more, you know, organic and uh-huh. some, much more tangible as dream yeah. uh, and ethereal. And so there's a lot of strange encounters in Epsara, uh, <laughs> which we may or may not recognize, uh, but certainly we recognize, I would recognize them as dream kind of dream states where spellbound is much more you know a, a, a book that deals with the um the waking world i suppose uh-huh yeah, yeah. i um i mean the 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 thing i uh, was either consciously or unconsciously trying to do in upsara was to not have it float off into a sort of state of pure magic or magical realism i mean whatever that word means i wanted some more grounding in the stories so that they always have a sense of being tethered, like you say, to to the world. Um, I don't know, I I, uh, I think that that's part of what makes them jarring in a way, you know, like there you could almost recognize the sort of mundane moments um, reflected back into your own life. And so the parts that are a little more uncanny or magical become that much more jarring in Apsara. Um, but yeah, and, and Spellbound is, is not about, uh, about that at all. It's much more, uh, as you say, it's like digitally colored and it has a much more graphic quality. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's much more, 
you know, as I say, it was it was meant to be a diary comic at one point, so it didn't really lend itself to floating off into another world. Um, I mean, on occasion, it flirts with a sort of uh, sort of phantasmic, like you, you're not quite sure what's happening within the story. But those moments are very few and far between. It's mostly about like about about exploring some of the more mundane moments. Um, mm -hmm and what that means in within the grand scheme of a life you know yeah yeah and those moments are are meaningful and and relatable in a in a very you know um straightforward way i mean yeah we read about anjali's working life and, uh -huh. and you know trying to make money and yeah. and taking a part-time job here and there and yeah you know, some of the frustrations that she encounters in interacting with people when she tries <laughs> to talk about her comics and things of that nature you know <laughs> yeah uh, i mean always trying to tell somebody about making comics there's it's always there's it's, a, a, <laughs> it's always a bad idea <laughs> I know. Unless you're um, a, unless you're a comics person, right? Unless you're, I know, right? We we understand one another, but uh, when when uh, trying to tell somebody else about it, they always kind of there's always that blank stare, right? And they're like, oh, is it like Garfield, right? Or <laughs> Kathy? <laughs> really? No, it's like if you took Kathy and then, you know, had, uh, you know, turned her into a sort of, uh, you know, kitchen sink drama with like yeah. tear actual tears and. And like really, you know, getting drunk and really melancholy moments and stuff. Absara <laughs> um, is, I guess I'll, I'll focus on Absara for a little bit. Yeah. You know, you were talking about Swan Dive. Well, Absara mm -hmm. is a series of these very, of these short stories. Some some fairly long, some uh, not quite so long. That all, yeah, all, as you were saying, we're all they're all tethered to the real world. And then there are these these moments where in which we are shocked or surprised or um, the, the stories veer off into strange and um, unexpected territory. Uh -huh. And in almost every story, there there is that moment where we're introduced to something that makes us step back and, you know, in first mm -hmm. the puzzlement, but then also, you know, a kind of search for for meaning and understanding and uh -huh. and you know, in the same way that we're hit by those moments in a, in a dream, they seemingly take place, you know, oftentimes in the world that we inhabit. And then there are encounters, right, where we are confronted with the unexpected, whether it's, yeah. you know, people we loved ones we've lost or it's uh, people from our lives who we barely notice in one situation or another. And all of a sudden there they turn up in your dream. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Right. Swan Dive, um, as you were talking about, let's, let's talk about that a little bit because okay. so it starts off um, at a lecture about cartography, about map making mm -hmm. and the possibilities of map making. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, which which I sense that you are fairly enthusiastic about. <laughs> I am. I mean, not I know next to nothing about it. I mean, I'm a, I'm a sort of cartography cartographic dilettante but <laughs> I, I find that I find the whole enterprise really fascinating um I, I actually that makes me think I should actually like study it a little bit more before I you know make more <laughs> comics about that involve cartography but um yeah I I find the whole thing even you know I, I think it's a long seated sort of uh, interest in that kind of thing like there, there are moments which uh, in, I'll just talk about Spellbound for a moment where I refer 
to um, where Anjali is in the airport and she's thinking about the London tube map and how the names on the on of the stations on the tube map seemed magical to her. And that's totally taken from my experience. Like when we used to visit my brother in London um, every two years, I thought it was it was a strange and wonderful new world, which was then mapped onto this tube map, you know, and just the names of these places that were so foreign to me seemed like another world. And uh, and the map itself, the graphic quality of the map itself allowed me to think myself into that world. Um, and I I think, yeah, as a child, I was I was really interested in the, in subway maps, but also in like city maps. Um, which I still collect to this day, and you know, just like maps of like you know Pat the streets of Paris or or of uh, Berlin or whatever. I can just like pour over them, and it becomes this other world for me. Um, so that's always been part of my experience, and that's really what I wanted to draw on um, as uh, as a sort of engine for for Swan Dive. But then it's interesting to then think about what that quality means to um, to a trans person. Like, what does it mean to map your community or map your culture or to map your gender, right? So that's what that story is, is really trying to do, is find the overlap between um, cartography as a practice and, and the building of trans culture. Um, it's yeah. really interesting, you, you know, you use the phrase trans geographies and I, I found that an interesting phrase because I've never really thought in terms of identity as a geography uh -huh. and, and so you can you talk about that a little bit um, because I found it an interesting phrase and it's probably been bandied about elsewhere but I, I I'm not <laughs> aware of it so um yeah so so what does that mean exactly you know identity is geography uh, Honestly, when I started the story, mm -hmm. um, it was meant to be sort of a joke in the sense that the lead character, Onima, is supposed to be slightly pretentious. So it's like it's almost like she makes up this sort of highfalutin um, okay. term, but and is sort of dazzling her audience with these words that that are sort of opaque, right? But the more I the more I worked on that story, the more it became it, the more it sort of coalesced into something that made more sense. And I think what, um, you know, I actually like used the idea of mapping and utopia recently at a comics workshop, which I did in Orlando with my friend Vidhu Agarwal, um, in which I asked students to draw a map of what they considered to be or to imagine a utopia of their own but to um document it by making a map of this place right oh, yeah. so so they did this and then they created characters that inhabited that map so these they would be like the two character protagonists of swan dive and then i asked them to like write a postcard from one character to someone else outside of that utopia, and finally to draw scenes of the two characters within this utopia. So it's really like, um, it was an exercise in world building, mm -hmm. um, which is, I think, not so unlike the way queer people build their own worlds, right? So, um, you know, I was thinking about 
things like I mentioned, you know, South Asian trans women, hijras who create their own communities because a lot of them are exiled from their biological families so that they create a sort of matrilineal uh, community in which there's a sort of elder trans woman who then guides younger trans women into how to be a person in this uh, in society, but also be trans, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a system of housing that is that is part of this. There's a system of uh, culture of like, you know, work that you can do as a trans person. So a lot of it is um, geography in the sense that there is a physical manifestation of queerness within the world, right? And some of it happens to be either architectural or, you know, sociopolitical, and the two are are intimately entwined, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I think that's what I was trying to get at with this idea of trans geographies, like how creation of queer communities and culture manifests themselves within a sort of the space of cartography, like how those things show up on a map, right? Mm -hmm. or, or how those things can be documented through the process of map making. It's still something I'm working out and I, I don't know how much of it is like, um, you know, kind of airy fairy thinking, but um, I'd like to think there's something in there that's worth tapping into. Well, you know, as you say that, and and it's it's kind of opening my mind a little bit to to and I, uh, this idea, which I suppose in some sense, if we really begin to examine identity and and uh, how it in all of its manifestations, gender and race and mm -hmm. whatnot, and how it plays out, as you were saying, both sociopolitically and also geographically, physically. <laughs> Uh, indeed, it does, right? I mean, uh, in overt ways, we can see how communities are are isolated, you know, in one place or another, either by race or by gender or by you know, queer identity or or whatnot. And you know, on the other, by the other hand, you know, we see uh, gated communities where yes. uh, you know, right, um, people of a particular uh, race, right, uh, or or you know, religion or whatever, sort of gate themselves into this this blockaded kind of world of privilege or whatnot um you know so it does play out right in in political ways in yeah. social ways and in structural ways that are very physical and manifest in the world so yeah so it makes perfect sense now that you talk uh, talk it out right i mean i was thinking you know there are very physical manifestations of certain tendencies in, in history, for example, um, you know, Haussmann's uh, sort of renovation of Paris, you know, cutting yeah. cutting through swaths of, of sort of dense urban fabric and creating these wide boulevards and, and these sort of central nodes that then connect to other nodes. That's a very physical manifestation of something. I'm not exactly sure what, but it's not you know, it's a very specific political stance on urban design. Um, another example is like Jeremy Bentham's Panopticon, right? That's a very specific architectural idea of um, surrounding the idea of surveillance and and a sort of mastery of social space, right? Both of those are manifestations of a specific way of thinking. So how do you take a tendency like, how do you take that idea? And then what if a trans person had been in charge of a similar project or had the scope to, you know, take on 
an urban design project of that scale, what would that city look like? Yeah. Is maybe the way I the question I was trying to answer with Swan Dive. Yeah, and and so and that is answered in a in really quite extraordinary way uh, through the map that um, that Onima is is that how I pronounce her name Onima or Onima yeah mm -hmm. you know, how the the map that Onima makes and I don't know if it's I should say what medium she uses encountering <laughs> the story uh, but it's an interesting approach although actually it's very natural to make imagery with with well with blood you know. Uh -huh. Obviously, uh, people. I mean, Paleolithic caves, right? Or, or handprints made in blood, uh -huh. of that nature. So it makes perfect sense to to engender a kind of of map, um, a, a map that is, a, as you're pointing out, I think a a trans utopia, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. which is made manifest in these extraordinary illustrations in the book. I mean, some of these are, you know, these moments, uh, this grand finale, really, to the story, which <laughs> is, you know is uh, a wandering through this imagined yeah. space, uh, yeah. which is a space that is multi-layered and present and not present. It's here and there. And it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's spatially interesting, you know, in the way um, there's almost like a cubist look to it as I'm looking yeah. at it just now. Yeah. Where in time and space kind of collapse upon exactly. one another, you know, yeah. really beautiful moment, which is, uh, Thank you. You know, something that you get, from, I, I'm thinking of it, you know, I hadn't thought of cubism until I was looking at it, really, I'm holding it away from my, you know, <laughs> a little farther away from my, my reading glasses than usual. And, uh, <laughs> right, and it's really quite beautiful. Thank uh, you. But it, it is also reflective of that collapsing, that, that sort of simultaneous, simultaneity that is in cubism is kind of evident here also. I yeah. am. One thing I was um, thinking about while working on those pages, and you know, I'm so glad that my editors at Feminist Press asked me to do this story because I was looking for an excuse to sort of indulge in this um, exercise. Was to, you know, I've always thought about um, the space of map making, the space of architectural representation, and the space of comics, and I think a lot of those. Um, the grand finale, as you called it, of Swan Dive is an attempt to collapse all of those three um, spaces onto one flat plane. So mm -hmm. there's not only maps within those images, there are representations of architecture from, you know, from like axonometric or isometric views, but then also perspectival views. But then also there, you know, it's a comic, so there's like there are people inhabiting those spaces um, and not just in a sort of generic way. They're they're intimately and dynamically part of these spaces. Um, so, yeah, I think it, it was the beginning of a, a tendency that I made wanted to put onto the page. And I've, I've done this a little bit in other stories. There's um there's a story in Apsara called Apsara Engine, which is in full color, where I tried to do that. Um, where like there's a cut cutaway of a building and a character moving through this section of a building and you see her at different moments during the day. And I think of that as a sort of dry run for what happens in Swan Dive, um, which is to say the these, spa these spaces of representation come together and sort of ignite each other. Yeah, I, I, you know, it's, it's very exciting really to think now about 
what you're doing in terms of time and space on the comics page. And you know, you know, you think about the nine. Uh, Scott McCloud talks about, I think, you know, and I think a lot of people talk mm-hmm. about, you know, how, how everything is present on the comics page. That yes. both, you know, um, in terms of time, uh, um, both the past and the present and the future are all present. Yep. There on the page, whether you're talking about what you're doing here, or you're talking about a nine-panel grid. Okay. The thing about the nine-panel grid is it it walks you through it right in a very linear mode. Yes. What you're doing here, sort of, you know, overturns that linear mode and really emphasizes the simultaneity of it mm-hmm. all all at once mm-hmm. and the multiplicity inherent in in you know multiple images on a page mm-hmm. this sort of as you said sort of collapses them into one another so that they fold sort of seamlessly in and out right uh, yeah yeah very complex but at the same time very inherent in the potentiality of the comics page which is yeah really quite beautiful um i i think a lot of um one person that i'll mention who i derived a lot of inspiration from even though like thematically i'm not really down with (laughs) a lot of his uh you know the content the themes of his work don't appear but chris ware's work Mm -hmm. in terms of the way he designs pages and the way he approaches he has a similar interest in architecture too obviously right Mm -hmm. um but also that that kind of simultaneity where like there's an entire page that takes place within the space of a building, right? Yeah. Um, I really found that kind of work to be very inspirational, but I wanted to take it in a completely di- different uh, tonal and visual direction with my work. Hey, listeners, I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I hope you're enjoying today's interview. If you are and you want to show support, head on over to my Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan. At Patreon, you can contribute as little as a dollar on a regular basis to ensure the longevity of this podcast. Your support will help keep it not only commercial free, but free to the listening public. And in exchange, you'll get some pretty neat stuff. There are at least three different tiers. Each level offers its own distinct rewards. So check it out today at patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan, G-E-O-F-F-G-R-O-G-A-N. Any amount is welcome, and your support is greatly appreciated. Thanks again, and that's patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan. Well, I think you do, and I think you succeed at that. You know, I think uh, one of the things that I love Chris Ware's work. I'm very admiring of Chris Ware's work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I say that, like, you know, I think you can tell from the way I describe <laughs> there's kind of distance there, you know. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, I don't feel emotionally uh, i can't say i don't feel emotionally involved in his stories i do um and they can be very powerful and very moving but at the same time i'm so intellectually kind of cognizant of what he's doing you know that uh, i think robert de niro said something about somebody maybe it was dustin hoffman's acting or something that that it was all very the tools were all very much present in 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 the forefront you know you were always kind of aware of that but with what what you've done i think it's sort of okay it goes you know not to to your own too much but it sort of goes beyond that so that i'm not so cognizant of Mm. you know the first thing that hits me isn't exactly the formality of it Uh formality hits me as a kind of consequence of it oh that's 
That's so interesting. Yeah. It's it's a different kind of experience than what I experienced with the, when I experienced Chris Ware's work. And um and so I I find that I kind of stumble and fall into your pages like uh, uh, you know emotionally um the way one would stumble and fall into some a particular space, right? You know, uh-huh. your, yeah. your emotions are on the surface there and that kind of happens here. Um, in Swan Dive, in particular, whereas in in Chris Ware's work, I'm always so, you know, intellectually, analytically aware, and and uh, uh-huh. and that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just a distinction, you know. Yeah, that's you know. Um, I'll just mention something very strange and anecdotal. Um, I was on a call with. I was on a. It was like a. Uh, discussion I was having with Liz Francis, who does Street Noise Book, who the sort of um, executrix of Street Noise, who um, we were doing a presentation to the Society of Printers in Boston about the process of making Spellbound. And someone mentioned something about my name, Bishak, mm-hmm. and she said, oh, it, you know, is it a Persian name? And I'm like, uh, I don't think so. Um, she and then she said something about like oh because in in farsi it means without a horn and i'm like huh okay i'm not sure what to make of that but then i did a little more etymological research and i could be completely off with this but what i found was that it also means to stumble or slide oh. and uh, when you mentioned that you know stumbling and falling into the space i was like oh there's some sort of kismet going on here and like <laughs> you know I don't know. I, I found it a little eerie. Um, yeah, that's fascinating, really. You know, it, it really is interesting. Um, you know, it makes, as you were talking about the etymology of your name, I was just thinking about, um, you know, your experience, your visual experience, for example, growing uh-huh. up. I mean, certainly, you know, you've, you, you have quite a diverse, you know, experience growing up, whereas I grew up you know, in a kind of provincial upstate New York area. Um, and as as much as I love the place and the the richness of my own life, as it were, mm-hmm. I don't have the experience that you have, which is a quite, I think, diverse experience. And you've traveled all over, really. So yeah. your, your visual experience is probably quite, quite rich and and your influences must be you know from a whole variety of sources i mean we're talking about cartography and map making and Uh obviously that's played a role but there must be other um you know types of imagery that have impacted the way you think in terms of page design and Uh structure anything come to mind that um you know that that strikes you as something that is built into to the way you you structure your work that that you can think of relates to other visual experiences that may be outside of comics yeah i think um a lot of the uh, you can see this a lot in in apsara i think there's um and i mention it i forget if i mention it in any of the books but i grew up with a lot of images of of goddesses in my household um uh, so I'm Bengali, right? And uh, a lot of Bengalis worship two or three goddesses specifically. You know, like uh, Hindus in various parts of India devote themselves to different gods or goddesses, right? So, for example, a merchant might um, have images of Ganesh, right, who's the remover of obstacles and brings you luck in terms of money and stuff. But Bengalis um, 
have a reverence for um, certain mother goddesses like Durga or Kali or the goddess of learning and music and art, Saraswati, who is my particular sort of muse. Um, so I grew up with these images of really fierce, powerful femme goddesses who I think, uh, you know, they show up one, you know, every once in a while in the work um, as as sort of uh, energies, you know, and that uh, I think I'm thinking specifically of um, the story Love Song in Apsara, mm -hmm. which yes. is concerned with mortality and the end with um, with divine energies, right? Um, so that's one thing. Um, what was the other thing I was thinking of? Um, well, I mean, to, just to talk about comics specifically, mm -hmm. I think I, my parents also put me on that path because they read me a lot of comics when I was very, very young. Um, and I think, and I realized this is problematic um, in retrospect, but Tintin, and Hergé's work really guided me into the world of comics and made me much more aware of the possibilities um, of the of of the page and of character design and of of um, interactions between characters and stuff. Um, so there is there is that. Um, and then, of course, you know, architecture plays such yes. an amazingly important uh -huh. role throughout all of your work. In particular, though, in Apsara, um, yeah. you know, it really seems to be in the forefront of, uh, I mean, it, it shows up not just in terms of architectural rendering, which, you know, listeners maybe yeah. think of, but it, it does turn up in terms of, of design, but also in terms of the spaces your characters occupy, which yeah. uh, which are both um again real world spaces but also otherworldly spaces uh -huh. and you know i'm thinking of um of the hotel hotel varda um, <laughs> yeah. engine yeah. which is uh, again i think uh, occurs later on right we see hotel varda again in the in the book is i'm guessing in pleasure palace maybe that we we see is that the hotel varda there as well it's possible. It, I mean, it, they could be sister hotels, I'm, it, but I, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a similarity in, in terms of architectural um, style and and uh, the, you know the kind of environments that, they, and in fact, the hot, hotels show up all all over the place, right? Because the, in Swan Dive, there's one too, even though it's oh, yeah. not as magical as right, the other two. Right. right. Um, no, you know, I was just thinking. I mean, the you're okay. So I, I was. Uh, I'm talking about the architecture both as architectural uh, rendering, which I uh, mm -hmm. really didn't say, but but um, also the the spaces of rooms like oh, you know a coffee shop or someplace, uh -huh. where, mm -hmm. you know um, in in throat uh, yeah. in a yeah. coffee shop and and the coffee shop almost has this quality that's like um, almost like the New York Public Library, you know, <laughs> this grand space with very high ceilings and yeah, you know when when you're thinking about the spaces that you place your characters in, are you thinking about how the characters are seen in those spaces or how the characters feel in those spaces um because the, you know in that particular one the scale of the space at least initially is is kind of 
humbling, you know, overwhelming uh-huh. a little bit. Um, there, it's it's such a large space, and 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 you know, much bigger than any Barnes and Noble or Starbucks that I've <laughs> ever been in. And yet, at the same time, you know, it's very recognizable as uh-huh. as a kind of environment you'd see in a coffee shop. Um, so, are you thinking about how those spaces act? as psychologically emotionally on the characters oh the yeah people. absolutely like in throat to be fair fairly honest i just wanted an excuse to draw those that uh, sort of grand bar space which oh. was, <laughs> which was inspired by a lot of like bars that i frequented i mean in for example amsterdam right there's a sort of um element of of history and also elegance and and a, a sort of grandness of scale that you get when in places like Vienna or Paris or Amsterdam that you don't get here. So I just wanted an excuse to tap into that. Having said that, though, there is, yeah, I can see like uh, how that space turns that story into something that would be it would be very different if it was a more mundane, as you say, like in a Starbucks or something. I mean, I'm not sure if this, the horror of that story would be heightened or not. Um, but also, you you wouldn't even notice that if it was in a Starbucks, you wouldn't really notice the environment that it's in. So I don't know if it would foreground the story more or not. Or, you know, I, I, I think it lends another sense of otherworldliness to the story that maybe it wouldn't have if it was in a more mundane space. Yeah. Um, it yeah. it is like showing up in in your dreams in one of those spaces that you yeah. recognize and don't recognize. You yeah, know? exactly. Yeah. I wanted to say one more. Um, I was thinking about your question about like visual experience, and mm-hmm. w- one thing I took away a lot from in later in my life in architecture school was being introduced to different kinds of architecture, namely uh, what is called. Uh, for lack of a better way to put it, uh, visionary architecture. Mm-hmm. So especially the work of Lebius Woods was something that I found really inspirational. And if I don't know if you're familiar with his stuff. No, I'm not. So his work, I mean, he is considered an architect, right, in the sense that he, um, well, he inhabits that world and teaches architecture, but as far as I know, has never built a building, right? So all of his works are on paper, and they're very dystopian right they're very influenced by science fiction and by images of sort of decay and and uh well simultaneous decay and sort of futurity right so there's an element of like piranesi in there but combined with blade runner for example um and that's something that kind of visual language was something i found really inspirational um and then also like people architects like zaha hadid who kind of um, pushed the boundaries of how to represent architecture visually. I found her work very compelling. And I think things like, as you say, you know, the Hotel Varda in Uppsala is a direct result of of being um, of being inspired by her work and her visual language. Um, so yeah, it's like that all of that stuff which was happening in my 20s found its way back into the comics um even after i i'd quit architecture so that 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 language lingered long after i gave up the actual practice of it well you know it's fascinating that that you found ways to incorporate it in your work 
both as like physical spaces in which characters inhabit so it's an environment but it's also a structure you know yeah. uh, in in Afsara engine it's very much a structure the buildings are a structure that enable the narrative to progress and then uh, uh, in in swan dive of course we have that you know uh, that end that grand finale that is yeah. is both cartography architecture and and page structure and uh, and time and space all at once which is really extraordinary um you know i'm looking at as we were talking about these interesting kinds of approaches to architecture and actually uh you know i i had to uh, i took an architectural theory course uh, oh. in, as part of my um my uh, my graduate work uh, uh-huh. in art history and uh-huh. i have i have two degrees in in uh, painting and in our history and, um so i had to take architectural theory and i'd never taken an architectural course in my life so it was mm-hmm. an introduction but the phenomenon that i was I, I found so extraordinary was that that you know so many architects who are who are revered and well known never built buildings you know uh-huh. worked only theoretically but uh-huh. the, the theory is so potent and so visionary and yeah. and important that it in it inspires other architects to go forward and mm-hmm. and so much innovation happens in theory as opposed yes. to in practicality because building a building is a is a different thing than thinking about what buildings can be exactly yeah, yeah. and i think you know a similar thought might be that like science is often influenced by science fiction right mm-hmm. like the sort of grand thinking of science fiction enables science to happen to some degree, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, and, and the other thing that strikes my mind is, is that architectural theory um, and this idea w- w- in architectural theory, this idea that a building is not simply just a space in which people inhabit physically. It's mm-hmm. also, as you were describing earlier, uh, it's also a political space. It's uh-huh. also, a, a, you know, a structural, a, a societal, societal structural space as well as a physical space. And that's that's a way of thinking about architecture that I, that I think in our day-to-day lives, most people don't think about how architecture functions both, you know, physically and also sociologically and yeah. uh, in such a variety of different ways. But, mm-hmm. you know, we do see the impact of that in the way that spaces that are designed architecturally, you know, in both embrace uh, certain audiences and certain people and then exclude audience. Yep. Certain yep. And these spaces actually do this and these buildings <laughs> gathered together actually do this. Anyway, it was, it's kind of fascinating, but I, I'm looking at, uh, Dahara city, uh, <laughs> beginning of, and, and which is extraordinary because this is a kind of, or, and if you haven't seen this book, you've got to go out and get Upsar engine because it's really, I mean, visually it's unlike, I think any comics, that you you'll probably come across any place oh, and and that's nice to hear. it really is unique visually i think and and when we talk about uh, the story of upsara engine which is the color section in the center of the book and you know, we're looking at a kind of organic architecture here it's almost like architecture as landscape mm-hmm. um in dara city and i don't know is that something that you were thinking of because it really feels like landscape but it's also architectural That's something I've always been very interested in sort of untangling is like, 
is what, um, and it's also a map, right? It's also right. it's a map and it's architecture and it's landscape. And the issue of how those three are wedded or not is something I've been exploring to some degree in comics, but then, um, you know, I, I do sort of water, large scale water, not large scale, to me they're large scale, but like, you know, 13, 14 by 20 uh, watercolor paintings that attempt to do that same thing where maps mm -hmm. become landscapes, which become architecture and, and then sort of double over and fold back into maps. Um, so I'm always interested in how, how you know, the sort of flat plane um, becomes inflated and, and, and gains volume and becomes something else and then reverts back. And it's sort of like, I don't know, there's, I'm inter interested in the fluidity of uh, between all of those things in the way that like there's a fluidity, um, as you were mentioning, you know, like to gender, there's like never, it's not ever one thing and it's always, and it's resisting being a binary. So I'm, oh, I'm look, I, I, I think that's a really interesting space to occupy where um, space itself becomes something more than the category that it's originally assigned to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it 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 transcends those categories, and yeah. uh, and and it's kind of you know we're we're talking about visionary architecture, and mm -hmm. this is a form of visionary architecture, yeah. just, and it it involves cartography as well. Um, it's it it's something it it makes me wonder if it ever could exist, or if in fact you know it's something that we're moving towards this idea, you know, of this blending of mm -hmm. these different genre different mediums um is it something that you know a future architecture might take into account might begin to look like i mean so that architecture becomes both um you know distinct mm -hmm. but invisible in a sense uh in the way that it inhabits the space i, I don't i don't know i'm just kind of going off I think, I think you're starting to see it in a lot of architecture that's um, coming out now in the sense that there's a sort of blending of landscape and architecture, but it's still a sort of token gesture. Mm. Uh, you know, you just think about green roofs and things <laughs> like this and like how buildings are starting to resemble like that whole, um, you know, the sort of installation at, at um, Lincoln Center, which was very much involved with the idea of an artificial landscape that is, uh, is tipping its hat towards the idea of what is natural but clearly isn't but also then how does that installation inhabit the space of a very rigid orthogonal architecture right um i think you're starting to see the blending of the two but as i say it's not it's still very those two things those two ideas are in their very distinct realms still mm -hmm. i think you know i always go back to science fiction and the visual uh sort of iconography of science fiction and that you can I think even in things like Star Trek, mm -hmm, when sure. they like, you know, they go off into another, they go off into a sort of utopian planet, there is a sense that, that that's what they're aiming at as a sort of unification of landscape and architecture to some degree and of like a sort of homogenous, like not homogenous, but a, yeah, a unified visual quality to, to this world, right? Mm -hmm. um, I, and probably, that fails to some degree because you know such some visual ideas become very outdated very quickly and um, 
you know, you just have to think about like the project of modernism in architecture and how people like Le Corbusier or Mies van der Rohe had very specific ideas about what a kind of utopian thinking could be like, but then it got very much sort of contaminated by the realities of um, of how we live our lives, you know, and it just did not play well in Peoria. I mean, because when they <laughs> imported it to the States, you can see what happened. The legacy of modernism is far from utopic, you know, it's like it became all sorts of other things. Oh yeah, it's it, it you know it became a method towards expediency and, mm-hmm. and you know cheapness in materials yeah. and you know and a kind of uniformity. I mean, everywhere you go now, big box stores and things mm-hmm. like that. You know, it's either that or like you know the world of high finance or you know the you know yeah. sort of glass and steel landscape of New York City, which to some degree is all about capital. <laughs> so. Yeah, and, and capital and power and power, yeah. language of power and uh-huh. uh, and in some sense it, and it's you know it's interesting to see how that language of power architecturally is used in storytelling, um, you know, say for example in superhero movies, which I'm not a big fan of. Uh-huh. Uh, but you, one of the things that always turns me off really uh-huh. is is uh, you know you turn on a, a the Avengers or something and they are in these these towers and these structures that uh-huh. saying are influenced by this modernist language of of steel and glass yeah. capital and power and uh-huh. power that comes across is the power of money yeah. You know? more than the power of individuals right it's the power of corporations we see that you know and it's funny how it plays out in storytelling um and and that language becomes ubiquitous and then it's just repeated over and over again and, and um right you know it, it turn it really turns me off <laughs> <laughs> so yeah you can just imagine like what would be the opposite of that what would uh, the architectural language of genuine community look like yes yes right? exactly and 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 that's what you're trying to do both you know in in the story of Apsara, but also um in in swan dive in the mm-hmm. cartography you know this mm-hmm. what, what would what would an architecture what would a map of uh a, of a community look like and and you know what would that utopia be? Uh-huh. And, and you know you were talking about Le Corbusier and and modernism, and there was a, 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 this is a scary thing is that you know this was a dream of utopia in a sense. Yeah. Oh, we'll have the the you know we'll have the 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 self-contained city. You know, and yep. this little yep. you know um, these box buildings and mm-hmm. they'll have the underground garage, and you'll have the stores right there, and and this is going to be utopia, and it turned yep. out to be something else entirely. You know? Yeah with these like patches of green in between all the towers yeah. um, when you can see how that translated into um, housing as not estates, but like housing blocks, right? Like, yeah. and how they crumbled and decayed and became something entirely different. Yeah. Based on the same principles. It, it, yeah, exactly. And, and uh, it's all, it, it's kind of really scary in a sense to kind of try to envision a future that's utopian because you just <laughs> know how it's going to, you know, play out in the real world. And usually it's disappointing, but, right. uh, but yeah. we have to keep going, right? We have to keep envisioning these things. Um, you know, uh, it's interesting to me. Um, well, there's so many interesting things about this, uh, about both books, and Apsara is the is the one I keep falling back on just because it's so. There's so many questions brought up <laughs> in the book, and so many um, unanswered questions that we're left to ponder, right? Uh-huh. 
some some sense. But it seems to me that so many of the stories deal with people who are in some way or another unable to communicate clearly to one another. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, and the desire to do so, I mean, throat, it's almost it's it's almost painfully yeah. apparent. Right. Uh-huh. In, in this little character of Kiki, who I don't <laughs> know what you call Kiki exactly, but Kiki is a, a, a four legged animal, a dog of some kind with the head of a child or a young uh-huh. girl, uh-huh. Um, you know, attached by this collar. And this inability or the the attempt that she makes uh, to speak uh-huh. uh, thwarted, right, uh, as, it, as it were, is a really painful story. Both Kiki and um, I can't remember the male character's name offhand, but he's on. Oh, no, I don't remember either. <laughs> <laughs> is it Mark or is it um, Mark? Maybe. Uh-huh. Mark. Um, yeah, it's Mark. OK, I wrote it down. It's Mark. <laughs> Um, yeah, he's unable to get his, his, you know, he's trying to speak to Kiki's, um, mother, I guess, Susan, he's he's trying to speak to her and he can't, he can't, he can't either. (laughs) It's really a painful moment, but it seems to encapsulate some of the themes that run through the book. This, this desire to speak, to, to, to say what's inside, but an inability to get there. Hmm. I, you know, it's interesting, it's it's really um, to hear your take on that. It, it, I may have thought that at some point, but it was never that apparent to me that these, that those particular threads were in the book. So ha- having you say that makes it, um, makes me, well, it makes me happy to know that there is a sort of uh, consistency thematically to the book but honestly I don't know how how much of that was deliberate and how much of it was just a reflection of the way I was thinking at the time you know like maybe it had if you want to like analyze it maybe it had to do with my inability to communicate to myself who I was or something Mm -hmm. but really these I, I hadn't thought of it that way until you you phrased it like this. So it's it's very heartening and also like um, kind of a revelation to to hear people's um, interpretations or unravelings of the stories. Um, well, it just struck me as one thing that you know I, you know we're dealing with is the stories go through. You know, more often than not, we're dealing with people who are you know whether they're the narrators or the the characters involved. You know, right from the beginning, um, in the first story, Sarah, you know, mm-hmm. in obvious pain and and in denial of that pain. At least it seems that way to me as I read the story. Uh-huh. And she's not even communicating to herself her pain. And um, and that uh, it seems that she's unable to communicate it to her partner either until the very end. And, mm-hmm. and she goes through this magical experience with a mermaid of some mm-hmm. kind. what mm-hmm. that mermaid represents. You know, I haven't really thought that through so much, but mm-hmm. but, you know, just the idea that, OK, these people are people in pain of some kind, psychic, emotional pain and finding ways 
or or that pain manifests its impact upon them and in, in and the consequences of it in different ways. I mean, you know, in Love Song, though, I feel as though the character there, and this is a beautiful poem. Um, Thank you. There, yeah. Did you? I, I'm before I get into what I thought mm-hmm. of it, my idea of how it kind of comes together, coalesces. Yeah. Is is did you write that poem, Love Song? um prior to illustrating it was it something that existed or did did it all come about at the same time it it didn't exist as uh as pure text before the story now i did the images i mean this is a very rare thing well it's hard to tell but um, i did the images and language simultaneously for that particular piece because there's there's a way in which the pacing of the story is grounded in how the images and the and the text uh, build on each other in terms of you know how it starts slow and and maybe there's only a verse and then it it sort of builds as the story um, becomes more complicated and then you know maybe there's an entire sort of paragraph of um, or a soliloquy uh, as the story like sort of takes off in midair you know literally yeah 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 and and you know there it's it's uh i found it a very moving um piece um Thank you. you know it's 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 interesting it's about obviously it's about love it's about mortality mm-hmm. it's about um the end of something yeah and at the very end and, and this is what i was alluding to before it seems to me this person who is in pain and describing something that has a great deal of sorrow, love and sorrow, uh, mm-hmm. and love and sorrow in some sense are, in love, joy and sorrow are inseparable, in, or joy and sorrow are inseparable in love, I suppose. Uh, yeah. Uh, and and yet at the end of it, it seems to me, in as it as it comes to its resolution, um, there is acceptance, and I don't yeah. know if that's correct or, but that's how I saw it. You know. Absolutely. No. No. That's that's a great um, reading of it. Um, Thank you for that. Um, and, it, you know, some of it, yeah, the acceptance comes, I think, from a lot of ideas. Of, yeah, and I think I'm going through this process myself now of, like, accepting what it means to, to uh, you know, this is the sort of Buddhist thinking of, like, of accepting the sort of ephemerality of things, right? And so, and I think, you know, when I was talking about the sort of goddesses that my family were devoted to, there's a certain sense of like, of this too shall pass, and by this I mean this existence. So it's it's okay. That's okay. You know, um, and a lot. I think that story also came about um, because um, I think my, my parents died fairly early in, in my mm-hmm. in my life. I mean in my, I guess my, when I was in my early 30s or just about 30. Mm -hmm. So I think it sort of set me adrift a little bit being um, the only person in my immediate family left in the States um, and what that that meant to me. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a sort of search for longing, uh, for belonging. Mm-hmm. A longing for belonging um, <laughs> that uh, that I think is also in a lot of the stories, particularly Swan Dive, but mm-hmm. an, an idea of like, what does it mean to be unmoored and at sea 
um, to feel like you've lost the things that that grounded you and how do you reconcile yourself to that? I mean, that sounds very grand, but <laughs> it's it. those are the kinds of ideas that informed Love Song specifically, you know? You know, uh, it's it's interesting. You're talking about the loss of your parents. I, I'm, um, and I'm, it's a, it's a transition that is, you know, a profound one. Uh, mm. It's one of the most important ones that we go through. I, I lost my mother when I turned forty. Um, I'm sorry. Yeah, and and to you too. You know, uh, I, um, my mom passed away from ovarian cancer and um and that unmoored me and still in some ways and i I understand what you're saying completely um for the longest time i mean really still you know um the people who were who uh, my wife and i were talking about this the other day you know when you you've lost your parents there is a linchpin Mm -hmm you know that to something that's Mm -hmm. lost and my my grandparents my parents uh both gone and um all gone and and it's so it's it's kind of there there is a you do become aware of this 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 as you said ephemerality of existence that Mm -hmm. and you have to come to some kind of to, to some terms with it you know yeah uh and i think this story is about in in some ways coming to terms with what it means to be human what it means to to have the human failings and human human attributes but also Uh, what it means to lose one another and in time and And perhaps to lose yourself too oh (laughs) yes absolutely right because that's what you're facing you become more just like eminem yeah yeah exactly. kidding kidding (laughs) but you do you become you know uh, much more aware of of uh of your own mortality mm-hmm. and, and um you get to a point where you have to uh what is it uh, joseph campbell said um you have to identify with the consciousness uh and not so much with the physical and yes uh, oh yeah mm-hmm. you know if you can identify with the consciousness you can let the other go and uh, over time although it's not quite as easy as that but, no, it, <laughs> but isn't. it isn't but yeah there's there's you know, it's a, it's a beautiful story in that sense, and it really spoke to me uh, because, you know, again, when you make these connections in life, whether it's to a partner or whether it's to a friend or whether it's, you know, a parent or someone mm-hmm. that you care for, mm-hmm. uh, this idea of loss is built into that yep. as well because you will yep. part it sometime. Right. And then hence, like, don't get too attached, but... Who, who can really do that, you know? Who can really do Easier that? Easier said than done. Easier right? said than done. Yes, absolutely. Now, there's another thing that that, um, that runs through your work, and that, and it, it, perhaps it's, it's a little more lighthearted, um, <laughs> you know, and that is cooking. Oh, um, cooking. Yeah. Cooking, yeah. Uh, I'm assuming from both Spellbound, and, and it's mentioned in, periodically in Epsar, that you are quite a chef. Oh, um, I like the process of cooking I'm by no means a chef and I'm I I don't I just tried to make like eggplant um fritters last night and failed so <laughs> it's I'm I'm more of a uh experimenter uh-huh. in, in the kitchen rather than a you know full-on chef I enjoy the process of it mm-hmm. um and I, I think a lot of this as Anjali 
mentions in the book goes back to my folks who like to cook, but it's also sort of inherent in Bengali culture. Like a lot of it is food based. And I think that's true for a lot of cultures, like, you know, sort of talking about food as a replacement for talking about other mm -hmm. things that may be more painful, um, but it's always present. And you're like, you know, if you meet someone or, you, you know, say a cousin or an aunt comes over, instead of saying, how are you? You say, have you eaten? And then, <laughs> you know, and then it all turns into this discussion of what, what like kind of sweets we're going to have with our tea and what kind of fish we're going to cook for dinner and so on and so forth, which is something I rebelled against, but I guess, you know, uh, is part of my cultural inheritance. So it's just something I wanted to write about in that book. Um, it was also interesting to me to focus on the process um, of Anjali quitting her job and then becoming much more mm. um, mindful of what she cooked because she didn't want to spend a lot of money mm -hmm. on, on extravagant outings for food. So she, this is hence all this talk about like cauliflower stems and things like this that are like money saving devices. And I still do that, you know, I'm still very aware of like using, um, using parts of vegetables that most people might throw away and, and just being aware of like um, what it means to be uh, someone, again, a sort of untethered person in the world who fancies themselves as an artist, you know, mm -hmm. and having a sort of uh, cognizance of, of the sort of instability of that situation. Um, I don't know if you read the Times review of, of no, Stilbin, but they did not like that aspect of it. They're like too many, too much cataloging of lunches, and I'm like, oh jeez, you know, I I I enjoyed that because, um, you know, I, I, it's I'm not what one would say is a foodie, but I like to cook. Yeah. Um, and and you know, my wife likes to cook, and and I enjoy the process. Mm -hmm. I also enjoy the process of breaking bread with a friend, or yeah, absolutely. Family, you know, and to me, that's a kind of, you know, one of the things that we're talking about here too is the building of community. And building of community over dinner or over uh, lunch, you know, this is this is part of our tradition. This is this is part of human culture, no matter what culture one comes from. This idea yep. that we share a meal together and then we've shared something special. We talk over the meal and and one is sharing one's one's bounty with another, you know, and that's a meaningful experience. And yeah. All part of our traditions and our rituals and our our celebrations are all tied up with food. Uh -huh. So, uh -huh. you know, I think it's a very meaningful and important aspect, and I think it's an important aspect of the book because it's also such an a, a, you know important aspect of every day. Yeah, right? absolutely. I mean, yeah, it's like, but and and not to take joy in it, I think, is to you know, I, you know, I understand like for any one of us who is cooking every day for a family or for mm -hmm. someone else or something, it can get old and it can, it's a, you can be a, as tiring as doing the laundry. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I appreciate what you're saying about breaking bread with people. Um, mm -hmm. I think the part for me that's most enjoyable is the prep, right? It's a sort okay. of like pregame um, in mm -hmm. which you're in the kitchen, drinking wine, hanging out, listening to, I don't know, the Robert Plant, Alison Krauss album and uh -huh. and doing all the chopping and sauteing and stuff and just being kind of, you know, totally cash about the whole thing, mm -hmm. um, which is what I mean, I think there's some of that in Spellbound when she Anjali invites Titania over mm -hmm. and they're sort of like 
just talking about music and and life, you know, before the actual dinner. And that that to me is like is my favorite part. And it, there's a sort of joy in that that um, that I find even more intriguing than the actual meal. Sure. <laughs> I don't know what that says about me, but I. <laughs> well, it is it is a moment where you know barriers seem to break down in those moments, right? Yeah. Um, Mm-hmm. You know, and and we are participating in something we're both going to enjoy. And, yeah. and, you know, there's just kind of and it's the anticipation and we're, you know, excited or whatever, looking forward to to the end product, whether, whether it works out or not. You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. We're looking yeah. forward. And I think it's an important um, I, I just I liked the, its presence in the book in Spellbound. Uh, I like that you referred to it. Uh, over and over again, because, you know, I think it's just also an important aspect of whatever culture we come from, whether yep. it's, you know, Bengali or whether it's Italian or whether mm-hmm. it's, you know, we bring with us these these traditions and share them. And um, and I'm always interested in learning about foods that I haven't experienced. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's I, th- I just enjoyed it. It brought a warmth and a, a kind of um, simplicity to what is also a very complex set of circumstances. And uh, oh, well, you'll have to come to my house and I'll take you <laughs> and listen. We can listen to Dead Can Dance. <laughs> Okie doke. <laughs> Who knows? One of these days when I'm back in New York, maybe I'll take you up on that. Okay. Uh, you know, sure. I'm, not, um, I'm also in upstate New York, by the way, farther. Upstate. Where are you? Um, actually, not too far away from where you are. I'm in Binghamton, New York. Or oh, near- Binghamton, sure. I've been there. Yeah, it's a, uh, um, it's where I grew up. And uh-huh. Of course, we lived in Brooklyn for a long time, but uh, we came right. back when we decided we wanted a little bit of property for a garden, and yeah. uh, that ended up being a big piece of property that's getting harder and harder to take care of the older we get. But, oh. never, <laughs> but it's wonderful. We we're both happy with it. Um, but amazing. So yeah, that was that was another thing I, I I did want to talk about was that that um, you know, idea about cooking and and uh, you know how it plays a role in your work. But you know, you know, there's something we haven't touched on yet. Uh, that that you're also your work has appeared in all kinds of places, which unfortunately mm-hmm. I, I haven't had access to. But one of those pre- mm-hmm. premier pa- places for a cartoonist, <laughs> The New Yorker, and so uh, you know that's that's fantastic. Um, when did that that you know relationship start, and how how often has has your work shown up there? Um, not very often. <laughs> I mean, well, it's as, not, right? it's I was not on. A- I was on a panel um, last week, or wh- whenever Mocha was, um, mm-hmm. with Ross Chast mm-hmm. and Barbara Smaller and Maggie Larson, and um, all of them have done. Obviously, Ross and Barbara have done much. You know, they've been at it longer than I have, and are, you know, Ross is pretty much like pretty much in like every issue. So she's got like an archive of work that's, you know. It, it, you can only like marvel at the, sure. the breadth of it. I've had not that many, but somehow, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not sure if I'm the only trans cartoonist at the New Yorker or not, but that seems to have like parlayed itself into some kind of notoriety. <laughs> um, but yeah, it started, I think in 2018 or 19. Um, I, I, do you know Gary Sullivan? 
No, I don't. Oh, uh, he used to do a comic for Rain Taxi. Mm-hmm. Um, he introduced me. His uh, a friend of his, David Borchart, is mm-hmm. also a regular New Yorker. And Gary told me I should, you know, if I had gags that I could wanted to float to the New Yorker, that David should take me to one of their New Yorkers infamous or famous um, Tuesday meetings. And so I asked David and we, this was obviously before the pandemic, but he took me to a meeting. I got to meet some of the old stalwarts and some new blood there. And uh, I met the uh, Emma, who's the editor, and showed her some of my work and she seemed to like it. And after that, I was just submitting every week or every two weeks. Mm-hmm. And eventually it sort of stuck. And I, I mean, one, I sold my first one and then Others came in the wake of that, and uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, as you say, it's a very, it's a very different practice, obviously, from yeah. the rest of my comics practice, and it also requires me to think in a very specific and slightly painful way. Like I'm using a part of my brain that hurts when I try to think <laughs> about gags, right? Yeah. Um, so that's why I think my output is not as great. Um, when I, when I, I, you know, a lot of people do this much more regularly than I do. Um, so I'm kind of in awe of them, but also it's much more natural to me to do comics, you know, rather than cartoons uh, or like gag cartoons. But I'm happy that, you know, I've indulged in it and that it's sort of um, taken, you know, to some mm-hmm. degree. Well, you know, it's it, it struck me as, as, you know, surprising, really, because um, I had not been familiar with your work as a gag cartoonist, and, <laughs> you know, I mean, and it really is quite different from the narrative structures that you use in your books. And, uh-huh. uh, you know, it, but also it's really quite I mean, it is a, it, it's a totally different mode of thinking. Uh-huh. And, you know, one of the things I found when I went from doing uh you know, comic book stories to doing um, a comic strip for Go Comics, which I did for a while, uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, was the idea, again, all of a sudden being, you know, taking this format, the daily uh-huh. comic strip, and, you know, working according to those beats and to that format right. is really a totally different mode of thinking. Exactly. And that's why I'd say, that's why I'm saying it hurts, <laughs> because yeah. it's like, you're suddenly starting to do like some sort of calisthenics that you just aren't used to and your your you know hamstrings start seizing up yeah. <laughs> and that's the sort of equivalent of it right yeah it really said that is. though like there there are i have tried to insert themes into the gag cartoons that are specific to my um, background or to my identity so like for example one of the first pieces I sold, which was not in print, but online at The New Yorker, was about misgendering. And it was an an analogy about misgendering that was like a six panel cartoon, um, which, again, comes more much more naturally to me, but also was a gag and also a sort of uh, teaching moment for folks who might wonder what the big deal about misgendering is. Right. So. I try on occasion to slip that in, you know, to slip in issues of, of gender and stuff into my work, you know, even at The New Yorker. Um, but it is a more, much more difficult enterprise for me. Yeah, because, and it's it's funny, you, you sort of have to stop the one mode of thinking and, and slip into this other mode of thinking. And, uh-huh. 
and and you know it it's um it takes a little bit of doing a little uh-huh. bit of time um uh, I, I don't know too many cartoons who f- float from the one to the other quite so seamlessly and easy uh <laughs> i think it just takes a moment really to reorient yourself absolutely yeah because you are writing in a very different way yeah yeah or or whatnot um uh-huh. but once it, one of the things i liked about the comic strip and, and when i was doing the comic strip it was all i was doing for a while uh-huh. and so uh so i didn't have any other distractions so i got into that mode of thinking which is again you know usually three panel beats right one two yep. three, one two three you know structure introduction um the middle panel and then the gag at the end and, yeah. and you get used to that it almost became like a kind of mantra in a way. You yeah. Know, repetition yeah. over and over again. Yeah, an incantation. And uh, and once you got into it long enough, you were doing it long enough, it, there was a kind of momentum to it that mm-hmm. carried you along. You right. Know, in, in a flow. And, it, and there was a comfort in that after a while. Um, but I do find, I did find then, once I did switch gears again, it was very difficult to go back to it. I know, right? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's tricky, but you know, um, I mean, it's, it's great that you're able to do that. And, um, you know, at the same time, bring some of your own experience to bear there, which I think is also really important and, uh, and really interesting. So, um, you know, good work. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I hope to keep pursuing that even as I do more of the stuff that I feel much more comfortable doing. Um, so I should, I should get back into like New Yorker mode of thinking on occasion. Well, it pays the bills, right? It and does. That, depend, yeah. <laughs> you know, and there's a certain sense of, you know, I guess along with some a prestige magazine, you know, yeah. there's still a certain kind of thing, um, prestige that goes along with it. Um, it it's so, you know, in the old days, I think, wasn't it, wasn't it back in the pre-digital days, didn't, didn't cartoonists have to sort of show up on a Tuesday or a Wednesday, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, with their, with their little portfolio of, of yeah 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 so. the whole process of of uh you know yes we'll take it no we won't right mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. just showed up with whatever tank which still happens but more often than not people are just are emailing the submissions and sure. yeah, yeah i would think i would think that would be the case you know so you know uh bishak this has been wonderful Thanks, um been a really enjoyable conversation and yeah uh, yeah it was really nice Um, really nice and i really thank you for taking the time out of your day uh you know to spend it with with me and with the audience here on blockhead and uh um i really appreciate it and i love the books uh they're just you know wonderful both of them for very different reasons and so i highly encourage anybody who's listening to to pick them up both absara engine and spellbound that is that's so nice to hear. Thank you so much. And thank you for inviting me oh, to, yeah. to be part of this little world. Um, I feel <laughs> like we've, we've carved out a, a little world of our own just by having this conversation. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I and I, I hope uh, it's as interesting to listeners as it has been to, to me because there's so many different aspects of your work that we could talk about and, and continue to talk about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, in particular, you know, even some of the cultural influences that we didn't really speak yeah. too much depth about. Um, mm-hmm. You know, right there on the cover of, of Apsara, which Apsara herself is uh, 
a goddess, right, or a, or a nymph. Is that a the... celestial? Yeah, I mean, I don't know exactly what the translation is, but I like to call them. They're like courtesans or celestial nymphs. They're like divine, uh, you know, dancers and entertainers of the court. But I've instead of um, their sort of marginal status that they occupy to some degree in they're overlooked characters in Hindu and uh, Buddhist mythologies. So I've taken them and put them uh, front and center. Right on the cover. And yeah. Uh, you know, this kind of spirit of femininity, which yes. runs through the book, and, yeah. you know, really, it's beautiful cover, beautiful Thank watercolors you. and a great touch with watercolor. Thank you so much. Will you be, um, you know, before we go, I guess, you know, as you're working on, I'm sure you're working on something now. Mm-hmm. Um, are, are you working digitally? Or are you working with traditional tools and which do you prefer? I do all of my line work. Um, with traditional tools, mm-hmm. so whether it's Upsar or Spellbound, I, I pencil and ink um, in the in the old old school style. Um, colors, it, I oscillate between the two. Um, for the projects that are coming up, I'm I'm trying to think of how to maybe do both at the same mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. And this is something I'm sort of that was one of my students at SVA inspired me to think about was maybe what how the sort of colors and tools that you use can also be part of the story that you're telling so Mm -hmm. there might be a more graphic component Mm -hmm. which is digital and then it's sort of maybe it like it sort of lapses into dream sequences which then can be more watercolory and fluid so I'm still working that out. Is it, and are are you working on uh, another series of short stories? Or are you working on uh, a long, you know, project? A, 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 you know, a, well, I guess a traditional, I guess, you know, narrative of sorts? Or, well, I mean, what's next for Bishak? Um, I am working on a, on a sustained, well, I don't want to call it a narrative, but it's, no, it's not short stories. It's a project that I've been wanting to do. I don't know how much to talk about it. Um, it might take a little more time than we have to go into it, but it is going to be um, a single continuous uh, story, even though I don't want to call it that. And uh, it's also there's I think there's going to be a very hybrid quality to it, mm-hmm. namely in terms of in terms of genre. Mm. Um, so it, it's I think it's going to try and do many things at once and possibly fail, but that will be part of its either charm or um, downfall. I'm not sure yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, w- one way or the other, uh, I'm looking forward to whatever you do next. Thank you. The, uh, however it turns out, you know, whether it's, however it realizes itself, I'm sure it'll be, it will be, you know, as beautiful as, as these books are. That's so sweet. Thank yeah. you. Well, you know, again, thank you. Thanks so much, Bishop, yeah. for being here. And uh, it's been great. And uh, Likewise. Thank you. You can learn more about Bishak and Bishak's work at bishaksum.com. That's B-I-S-H-A-K-H-S-O-M.com, where you can learn more. You can see her work. Uh, There's a lot of great samples in her portfolio. And uh, you can learn more about Epsara Engine and Spellbound. Remember, Epsara Engine, published by the Feminist Press, feministpress.org, City University of New York, and Spellbound, 
which is from streetnoisebooks.com. Streetnoisebooks.com. You can get both of those wherever good graphic novels are sold. So I am encouraging you to go out and get both of them. I would do that. I would get both of them at the same time. They're they're terrific books. Both, uh, again, you know, beautifully, beautifully illustrated uh, in different ways. You know, it's uh, uh, Spellbound has got these wonderful colors, digital colors, and, and uh, has a very different kind of, you know, look, almost like a comic strip look. And Upsara Engine, much more uh, in the graphic novel mode with some beautiful uh, pen and ink washes and and uh, watercolors and a uh, beautiful opportunity for Bishak to show her wonderful uh, capabilities with with landscape and architecture and how they m- meld into one another in these beautiful ways. The cover alone is worth the price of the book. So be sure to, to find both of them, okay? Well, as always, you can find me on Instagram at Green Screen Comic. That's Green Screen Comic, one word, where you can keep up with whatever news I have to share about the show, about upcoming guests, about my work in comics, uh, about the upcoming Kickstarter, which will be coming your way very shortly, sometime in the next month or so, I think. I'll be putting that together. The next issue of Green Screen will be available very, very soon via Kickstarter, so be looking for it. You'll hear all the info at Green Screen Comic on Instagram. Don't forget about the Patreon, patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan, G-E-O-F-F-G-R-O-G-A-N. Hey, if you want to support the show, not only can you, you help via Patreon, that's one way, but another way that's equally important, that's a five-star review on wherever you listen to your podcasts and a little a little note, you know, that tells people to come this way because it helps the show, builds the audience, and uh, it does a lot, believe me. So uh, if you've got the time, and you got a moment and you've enjoyed the show, write us a review and give us five stars. That uh, It does a lot to bring people this way. And the more people who come this way, the more time I can devote to it. So, uh, And I thank you for that. Uh, I hope to be back with you on Blockhead very shortly. And, you know, uh, the, the God's willing, whatever. Uh, hope things start to turn around in 2022 so let's hope it's not as long between shows this time around Uh, and uh, i'm looking forward to more good conversations about comics and i hope you are too i hope you are well i hope the sun is shining on you wherever you are and as always thanks for listening